story of Jephthah. Uh, his story encompasses a good uh, portion of uh, judges, and, and we come now to, I say, wisely into battle. Uh, no, one, no one wants a rash, impetuous leader, someone whose hand hovers over the red nuclear launch button whenever they negotiate, but we also don't want a cowardly lion, uh, always prepared to do nothing, no matter what the enemy does, the leader that's run over in every interaction. What we want is a prudent, balanced leader who exercises wisdom and patience in their responses and interactions, but who is also unwavering in what is right in holding to a justified position. And that's what we get from Jephthah, godly, prudent action as he marches wisely into battle, seen first in his dealing with Ammon. <clears throat> so I'm going to read chapter 11, verses 12 to 28, and carry us through the start of what he does. And so Jephthah sent messengers, and remember, he is just, in verse 11, committed to the Lord. He has stood before the people and before the Lord and said, I'm going to serve, and, and he's making that commitment to the Lord and to the nation of Israel. And then he says, and Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me? that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the king of the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon, even unto Jabbok and unto the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon. And I just want you to realize he's about to give a history of Israel that is perfectly accurate. It also has a timeline that helps commentators date judges because it is that pinpoint. So he goes on here and he says, um, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers under the king of Edom. We're going to cover this story in Numbers, actually. It's the end of Numbers is where we'll talk through this, saying, let me, let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land, for the king of Edom would not hearken thereto. And in like manner, they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent. And Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness. In other words, they went the long way around and compassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came by the east side of the land of Moab and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Sion, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon. And Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray thee, through thy land into my place. But Sion trusted not Israel to pass through his coast, but Sion gathered all his people together and pitched in Jabez and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sion and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. And he's building up this idea, wasn't your land to begin with, we took it from somebody else. It says, and they possessed all the coast of the Amorites from Arnon, even unto Jabbok, and from the wilderness, even unto Jordan. So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it? And I want you to see what he's doing there. He's saying, how dare you try to take from us what God has given to us? He gives them a little comparison. He says, wilt thou not possess that which Shamash thy God hath given thee to possess? In other words, you worship a false God. He's given you land. 
He's not acknowledging him as a God, just saying, that's how you see this. He says, so whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. And now art thou anything better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel or did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and her towns and Aror and her towns and all the cities that be along by the coast of Arnon 300 years, why therefore did you not recover them within that time? Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. And he puts again, God is forefront and the reason here. <clears throat> How be it? The king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah, which he sent him. And I want you to notice something about Jephthah. His first steps was to display diplomacy. He wanted to be prudent. There was a desire to avoid battle. When we think of Jephthah, many people paint him. And again, you're going to see a different look at maybe what, what you've seen through the years, not trying to be different. But there's actually a lot of evidence in Scripture that points to him being an intelligent leader to being a biblical and godly man. And so what we see first from him is not a bloodthirsty entrance into battle, but instead he comes out and says, what are you doing? He tries to convince Ammon not to continue this. Question one, why are you attacking me? And Jephthah is using all the leverage he has because that's a personal thing. Why are you attacking me? He's saying, what are you doing? He's doing everything he can to avoid battle. He wants to make sure Ammon knows you're going against me leading all of Israel. Not me with just my band of soldiers, but me with all of Israel. And they know about Jephthah. He has spent his life or career protecting towns and villages and creating havoc for Ammon for the past 18 years. The response is, give me my land again peaceably which is interesting considering they've had a forceful occupation for 18 years. Give me my land. Well, you've already invaded this land. Uh, those 20 cities we're going to see take over, those are 20 cities set so they can hold the land. And so Ammon has been on the offensive the whole time, and now they're turning and saying, you give me, you get out of my way, you leave, you be oppressed is what they're saying. Then becomes the historical rebuttal, and this is an accurate recount of history. <coughs> Basically, Jephthah says, we never invaded Moab. We never invaded Edom. We walked around them. We tried to enter the promised land, which would be near Jericho, by crossing the Jordan and going through the Amorites' land. They chose to attack us, and God used that to give us the land. And, and he positions it perfectly. He says, hey, this is ours. The one true God gave it to us. And then he goes on and says, learn from history, Ammon. No one else attacked us. Take Balak. He hired Balaam to come curse Israel, but never took an offensive against them. And he says, by the way, for 300 years, you haven't bothered to bring this up, and now you're bringing it up? In other words, the, the facts of history prove that this is our land. What's response number two? Nothing. They don't listen. They didn't heed it. They didn't respond to this. This was, again, Jephthah displaying diplomacy, <coughs> showing prudence, being cautious, attempting to not have people go into battle. That disregard to reason, however, doesn't sway Jephthah. As we'll see, what he does from diplomacy is to now display determination. And that's what I find interesting in his character. Though he attempts to avoid war, 
He is not so consumed with avoiding war that he's going to move from what God had said. There is no waver in Jephthah, no compromise. Why is that? Because Jephthah knew the history of God's people. He knew the law. He's quoting Numbers, the history we're going to see in Numbers, the Pentateuch, the Holy Scriptures that God inspired Moses to write. He knew God had given Israel the land. It's not even his to forfeit. because God had given it to them. And then he took what he knew from Scripture, what God had done, because he knew God's word, and then he applied it to his circumstances. He showed godly prudence in seeking a peaceful resolution, always building his argument on what God has done and provided. Notice he keeps saying that. We went around, we went around, we tried. God gave us the land. God gave us the victory. God wants us to stay here. In other words, it's not my call. And then he showed godly determination in following through regardless of the world's response. How did the world respond to reason, to logic, to truth? What was their response? They ignored it. Not much has changed today. I put as a question, I wonder if we show the same aptitude with an application of God's word. If you were put in this situation, if you had to stand up to lead, if you had to take charge here, would you know enough of God's word? Would you have an aptitude, an ability, a knowledge, an intimate connection with what God had said? And would you have the courage, the fortitude, the, the, the character the spiritual health and maturity to apply his word to that circumstance. And then I know none of us are about to head to battle, uh, at least I don't think we are, uh, with swords and shields in the Middle East. So you have to take what's there and say, do I share the same aptitude with God's word in my life today? And do I apply it to my circumstances like Jephthah would have applied it to his? But with the negative response from Ammon, Jephthah and Israel are off to war, And shortly we find him dealing with victory. He moves from dealing with Ammon. The story moves quickly. That's what I find fascinating. I want to say, how did the fighting go? Uh, God doesn't give all the details because he gives the victory. And what we find is that Jephthah is now going to be dealing with victory. Theron read these verses, and and I'm going to read them again because there's critical parts to this. And the first one is, is key as we lead off. Then Ammon says no. I'm not going to do anything different. I'm going to do the land. They're going to ignore all the facts, all the logic. And I want you to realize they're ignoring truth. That's the world's response. No to truth. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And that's a critical phrase for this whole story. Highlight that. So the spirit of the Lord comes upon him, fills him as As New Testament believers, we're filled, we have the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was a filling. There was was special occasions when he would fill them and empower them. And this is one of them. Here it comes. And so he has filled with the Holy Spirit, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. In other words, he got his army, and he went to go fight them. He went to them to engage them in battle. They answered basically, no, he's going there. And then it's immediately there. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, if thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. 
And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And that phrase will be helpful if you've gone through Leviticus to understand where we're going to go. But what I want you to connect before I continue reading is this. The Spirit of the Lord filled Jephthah. And then he got the army up and he made a vow. And so he made a vow while filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And that connection is critical when we evaluate his vow and what he ends up doing with that. He goes on and says, So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aurora even till they come to Mennoneth, even twenty cities, <coughs> and unto the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. Then we shift to dealing with victory. What's going to come out? And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed, and she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. Now, a lot is tucked in the Jephthah's victory, but it's important to notice what it begins with, and that's him displaying God's spirit. The whole story turns on that phrase. It is indicative of what's going to unfold after that. Uh, this is not said to have happened with every judge. Up to this point, it's only been Othniel and Gideon who have said to be filled with the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean that everything they do is going to be in line with what God wants. It just means that he has the Spirit of God in him as he moves forward. This is not something to gloss over. With God's spirit filling him, Jephthah immediately heads out to confront the enemy. He gets the army, the, the no answer, filled with the spirit, moves to the forefront of the battle. Where Israel is, they go to where Ammon is, Mizpah to Gilead. Because that's where they had joined up Ammon in the earlier part of the chapter. Gilead is where they're located. He's down in Mizpah where he makes his vow to the Lord. They move to have battle. As he faces that enemy and he knows it is impossible without God, he makes a vow. And making a vow, by the way, would have been normal in this dispensation. A lot of people are going to go to the idea that pagans made vows. I'm going to say everyone made vows. This is what people did. Leviticus chapter 27 is all about people making vows. This is something that was taking place. This was showing and the vow was displaying commitment. He was showing that he was committed to God. It's not trying to coerce God. This is a man knowing that God would need to bring the victory, displaying commitment in a way that people would display commitment at this time. The vow was to give completely to the Lord what came first from his house. And then he goes on to say a burnt offering. And if you understand a burnt offering, it's an offering of total consecration. 
So the wording there is, I will give from what comes out of my house, and I will give it to the Lord, a burnt offering, a complete consecration to God. Now, there's a lot of debate on this vow. How rash was the vow? Did it ultimately involve the killing of his daughter? I'll be honest, people that I read, some of my favorite commentators, I don't agree with on this. Uh, I, there's plenty of commentators that take the same uh, view that I have. How pagan had Jephthah become? I don't believe he's become pagan. Uh, these opinions vary quite a bit. <clears throat> I want to acknowledge this. It's not a simple text. These are not easy phrases in Hebrew. Even Leviticus 27, which we're going to talk about, has a verse in there that can throw you in one direction if you read it a different way. And so it is a diff- difficult um, passage to go through. So I want to leave room um, for people maybe to disagree. And I'd say, I'd love to agree with you, but then we both be wrong. So I don't want to do that. Um, so we're just going to dive in. I'm going to build what I see here uh, based on some things. That's why I've been emphasizing it so much. One, Jephthah is a man that knows God's word. He handles God's word accurately. When he committed to serve Israel, he made the commitment before the Lord. He asked them, do you say before the Lord that you want to make me a leader? He gets to Mizpah. There's no requirement from them that he needs to commit to the Lord. He commits to the Lord. What is he saying as a leader constantly? The Lord goes first. His vow is a display of commitment. It is not someone who's just casting it off. So as you look at him, as he's filled with the Spirit, I think the following things are true about his vow, and we'll talk more about it later. Um, Jephthah vowed to give what would first come out of his house, human or animal, fully aware that he could be greeted by his only child, a daughter. He wasn't surprised by her coming out. He knew when he made the commitment that God could require from him what was most dear to him. He didn't know that. Thus, the commitment said, I will give to the Lord what first greets me. And I want you to see something there. He is left open. God's could send a cow, could send a servant, could send anyone out of the house to meet him because God is in control. And what he's doing is I'm making a commitment and he knows it. He's knowledgeable of that commitment. And his commitment is not, I'll give the Lord just an offering. I'll give a burnt offering. I'll give whatever comes out, a burnt offering of total consecration, animal or person. And he would have followed the requirements of a vow, which are listed in Leviticus chapter 27. Now, if you look in Leviticus 27, and I'm going to summarize it, an offering of a person can be redeemed at a price. So if you read the first eight verses of Leviticus, you can offer, you can vow somebody, and then you redeem it for a certain amount of money, depending on how old they are and what gender they are. That's the first portion of Leviticus 27. Yet for Jephthah, and this is where it's critical to understand the idea of of burnt offering, That person, if that person was his daughter, was connected to him, total consecration would mean being committed as an unmarried girl to a lifetime of tabernacle service. In other words, he would not redeem her from that because that would not have been total commitment. His vow, and that's why the adding of the burnt offering, if it would have been an animal that could have been sacrificed, it would have been offered on the offering. It would have been burnt completely up. If it was a human, it would be one of total consecration. What's the total consecration if it's your daughter? And in that, in that economy, uh, if you were an unmarried daughter, your dad decided your fate. That was how that worked. And so he would give everything away there. Uh, by the way, other women with the same dedication come into view at the end of Judges. At the end of Judges, we're going to read about how life was in Judges. It paints a picture. And what happens is the Benjamites 
condone horrific behavior. And then Israel basically wipes almost all of Benjamin out. And then they're left with no wives and a bunch of guys. And they think, oh no, a tribe's going to leave uh, Israel. And they go capture women. And one of the women they go get to be wives, because they all committed, will never give any Benjamite our daughters to be married. They steal from the daughters of Shiloh. Well, Shiloh is where the tabernacle is located. And all through Israel, men had committed. This is something people did. And so they stole, which just shows you how bad Israel had gotten, girls that were committed to a lifetime of service to the Lord at the tabernacle. Israel decides that they can usurp that and give them as wives to Benjamin. So those are the same grouping. And by the number that we see there, we know that this is not just a few things. It's not just one or two girls. It's actually quite a lot of them would serve there. And it was actually kind of a unique opportunity for women to serve because for a guy to serve, he'd have to be a Levite. But a lady of any tribe could be committed to full-time service and the work that they could do for the tabernacle. So it was a, a unique opportunity, but quite a sacrifice. So regarding Jephthah's daughter, she would then go up, which is the word be offered, at Shiloh, and the actual translation of offering up a burnt offering in Hebrew is, I will cause that which goes up to go up. So what is supposed to go up, I will bring up there. Uh, if you're offering an offering, you're going to burn the offering and the incense, it's going to go up. And so I will cause, I'm going to offer a burnt offering. I'm going to cause what should go up to go up. Now, if you take time to read Leviticus 27, I saw some of you flipping there. So if you want a fun verse to create some confusion, go to 29. If you look at verse 29, it says this, None devoted which shall be devoted of men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And there you have in Leviticus 27, you think, wait a second. If you vow a person, you kill him. Well, one, it's a misinterpretation of that verse. A little bit too, it would be saying God is saying, if you vow a person, you need to kill them. Uh, translations may vary here. Uh, it, it means that if something is devoted to destruction or punishment, like Achan was in Joshua 7, he could not be redeemed. None devoted can and has been translated, no person under the ban, no person for the purpose of destruction or being destroyed. It's Simplicity, I'm making it simpler because the word for destruction is also the word that you would use for burnt offering because it's utterly destroyed. So the word has a lot of meaning and character there. I just wanted to make sure I was fair in showing you what verse may trip you up if you look through Leviticus. But the point I want to make is for us to see that he made a conscious commitment of potentially what was dearest to him. And the fact is, at the end, he's called to make the deepest of sacrifices. Well, in short order, we find that Jephthah and company are seeing victory. God gives Israel a crushing defeat that has them overtaking 20 cities. And again, as I mentioned earlier, these 20 cities were what Ammon had planted in the land they conquered. Conquer land, put a city. Why do you put a city? You move people into that city. You build a fort around that city. Now you have a point of reference. If someone's going to come attack you, they don't have to just move through unoccupied land or move through unprotected villages. Instead, you build all these 20 cities and you now have protection as people come to attack you. Well, as we see there, 20 cities are just wiped off the mat. Israel thus broke the back of Ammon. The defeat was complete. Ammon relies on them to protect them. They're gone. God has overrun them. And so they return home, and Jephthah's daughter does come out to greet him, which has him seeing sacrifice. And I want you to get a picture of, of his life. 
run off by his family, still serving the nation of Israel with a band of outcasts, protecting villages, very much what David does with his band of outcasts. And remember, David comes after Jephthah, so he would have learned this from Jephthah, not the other way around. Called back in when there's an emergency, set to fight, makes a very big commitment to God. I'm not saying it was a necessary one. That's not in the text for us to understand, but he makes a very huge commitment to God. And then when it comes time to live out the commitment, he walks home and who greets him? His daughter. And that's why I say seeing sacrifice. God had required the most from him. He didn't send a calf out and he didn't send a servant out and he didn't send a goat, sheep, you name it, out. This is his little girl. This is his only heir. And she is now committed to serve the Lord at the tabernacle. Mind you, across the Jordan, and there will be no lineage for Jephthah. There's no grandchildren. Which, as you look at the king-type tendencies of the judges, and we've seen it, right? We see Gideon with his sons, and then we see Abimelech making himself king. We see these minor judges with all these kids in ruling. And then we're going to kind of watch this kind of feed down. Maybe it was for his own spiritual protection that God did this. But Jephthah, why does he rip his clothes? Why does he say, you've broken me? Well, he's about to lose his little girl and he's not going to have any grandkids and she's going to be across the river and he's going to be ruling and judging on this other side. And so what you see from him as he sees the sacrifice is an acknowledgement of what he is giving to the Lord. And then there's an acknowledgement of what she is giving to the Lord. I don't want us to miss who she is in the story. This is a spiritually minded young lady. She says to her father, you've committed to the Lord. We're going to fulfill that commitment. She doesn't rebel against it. She doesn't. Look, I guarantee you if Jephthah wanted to bend the rules, he could bend the rules. He could have gone to Israel and said, "Ah, I shouldn't have said that. And they would have been fine with it. I want you to notice something, though. What is repeated throughout the whole thing? She will not have a family. She will not have a family. She will not have a family. And that's what's mourned and remembered. And it's repeated in those verses multiple times. It emphasizes it. And this is just a little side note, but it's important. When you're studying Scripture and God repeats Himself, it's for a reason. And that's helpful to help us understand that He didn't take His daughter and throw it on an altar in Shiloh, light a match, and burn her to death. Because what is Scripture emphasizing about her sacrifice? What is it going to be? It's going to be that she will not have a family of her own. That she will be now committed as an unmarried girl, to serve the Lord for all of her life. See, the Spirit of the Lord filled Jephthah, and the Lord brought a decisive and final victory over Israel's enemies. Jephthah makes it clear that he knows that only God can free them from Ammon. He is completely reliant upon the Lord. And in displaying that reliance, in showing that reliance, he commits to the Lord, knowing that he is potentially committing what, is, what he holds dearest on his earth. What's the most important thing to Jephthah? His daughter. And he is called upon by God to give that sacrifice. I think in in a way, our Christianity loses sight of that. Because we want a Christianity that has us with a pile of money at the end and the gold at the rainbow end and the house we want, the family we want, no illness, by the way. We don't want cancer. We don't want to deal with any of that. We don't want to deal with life's ups and downs. We definitely don't want to deal with sacrifice. 
And Jephthah tells a, a hard story. It's hard for me when I read it, when I think about what is implied here, because yeah, he committed everything to the Lord and the Lord did ask him for it all. Because we forget about the missionary stories where they go out to reach a people and they get speared to death in a river. And then their families go out and reach those people. We oftentimes forget that, that there are times that God asks for all the sacrifice. And it's not God being mean. It's just what is there. And that's what Jephthah had to do. But here's what's interesting. What we see in him in both circumstances from battle to sacrifice is decisive action. He moved relying upon the Lord. And when he was called to give what was dearest, he makes decisive action in his sacrifice for the Lord. And I put here as a thought, I wonder though if we act in the same biblically decisive manner. And I know all of us are sitting there saying, oh yeah, I would be decisive. I would go out and win the battle. I would knock out Ammon. I would conquer him. Would you be as decisive when it comes to the sacrifice though that you've committed? Would we be as decisive as Jephthah in both the victory in the battlefield and then the crushing weight of giving the sacrifice that God is calling him to do? Now, Jephthah's life is not easy. There's the defeat of the known enemy and the dedication of his daughter, but that's not the end of difficult decisions that he'll face. Seemingly without a breath, a chance to catch his breath, we find him dealing with arrogance. This is the, the tribe of Ephraim. They love to create problems and victory. So the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passeth thou over to fight against the children of Ammon and didn't call us to go with you? And I'm just paraphrasing it so we understand the vernacular. How dare you win without us? Then they say something. We will burn thy house upon thee with fire. And I want us to understand what that statement means. It means I'm going to murder you. I'm going to kill you for this. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. And when I called you, you delivered me not out of their hands. In other words, you're a liar. We did call you. And when I saw that you delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead smote Ephraim because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. In other words, you don't belong. You're not part of us. You're just outcasts of both the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, which have been sons of Joseph that are there. And it was so when those Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, let me go over that the men of Gilead said unto them, art thou an Ephraimite? If he said nay, then said they unto him, say now Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. And I just want to put a little plug in for English class right here. Learn to speak correctly. It is going to save you a lot of heartache. Going on. Then they took him and slew him at the passage of Jordan. And there fell at that time of Ephraimites 40 and 2,000. And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. And I just want you to remember Ephraim's response to Gideon. How dare you win a war without us? And though there's a lot of similarities between this and what happened to Gideon, there is one very key difference that's here. Ephraim is all worked up against Gideon, but he is on their side of the river and he's from Manasseh and they are angry and agitated and he answers their anger and smooths it over. 
Ephraim is now angry and agitated at Jephthah, but they don't come with agitation. They come with murder. They didn't say, explain yourself. They said, we're going to burn your house down with you in it. Then we understand from the story, they basically looked at everyone from Gilead and said, you're just outcasts and fugitives. You have no right to live here. You're not even really Israelites. They arrogantly crossed the line. And what is Jephthah encountering now? He's seeing pride. Ephraim thinks that any success should run through them, even when they refuse to answer the call. Sadly, this is too easy to apply. Because aren't there far too many Christians in churches today just like Ephraim? How dare someone advance the gospel without getting approval from our committee? How dare you reach people with God-saving message without talking, dressing, and walking just like we do? And I want us to realize something that we as the church are way too often, not Jephthah, but Ephraim. Petty, petty, petty. And I wrote here, pride can quickly rear its head and have us saying and doing the ridiculous. Because what Ephraim did was ridiculous. They got an army together to go kill a brother in Christ, a brother of the children, the people of Israel, because they didn't do it the way they wanted it done. And by the way, not God's way, but the way Ephraim wanted it. And that's what Ephraim said and did. They displayed and acted upon ridiculous pride. And they found something out about Jephthah. That's a decisive man. And he made a quick, and I said, decisive action. He displays action. Now, many see this and what transpired is too harsh. They say maybe he was a little too exuberant. Some commentators say, well, he couldn't necessarily control all of his troops. I don't think he was too exuberant. These men crossed the river and said, we're going to murder you, turned to all the people that follow him and said, you're fugitives and outcasts. You don't even belong here. You don't belong here. What are they, what are they going to do? These are people with murder in their heart. And so I don't think they should have let Ephraim go back over the river and, and, and plot their next attack. No, this is the time for action. And so that didn't make sense to the Gileites, and God gives them the victory. What can be seen is that Jephthah reasoned again. He told them, we talked to you. We tried to get you. They chose to come back at him. And then when it's fruitless to discuss, well, we know what Jephthah's character is. Take action. Move forward. What's the point I hope we can take from Ephraim? Pride carries us to foolish words and actions. Ephraim, I just want you to get a picture of what they did. Ephraim decided to threaten the man of God, filled with the Spirit of God, who had been used by God to defeat an 18-year-old oppression from an enemy Ephraim couldn't handle. They'd already been over the river. Ammon has taken part in Ephraim, Judah, and in Benjamin. And so what you see is they go to God's man in this moment, who's filled with the Spirit of God, who's won a huge victory over an enemy they could not defeat on their own, and thought, let's go ahead and fight him. And I want you to realize something. Pride takes the logic right out of you and replaces it with an ugly arrogance. And it's very pricey. It costs Ephraim a lot. 42,000 soldiers. And some people say, oh, 42,000, it means really 42 clans, and they come up with all the different math. It says 42,000. A lot of people died. And then I put here, as a question which should make us wonder, have we been responding in pride to what the Lord has accomplished through other believers? I've seen this 
I've seen it on the mission field, it's ugly, where everything becomes a competition, where someone can preach the gospel and can win people for Christ and can plant churches, and we see a ministry grow and work and, and, and thrive, and then someone comes in and says, well, I'm ministering in the same place, and so I've got to shoot, I've got to throw stones, I've got to attack that because they're doing what I want to do. They're accomplishing what I want to accomplish. And sure enough, they don't necessarily uh, wear the same kind of shoes or maybe put a coat on or put a tie on or whatever it may be, that we find a way to nitpick and attack. And what is that? That's pride. It's serving self, because that's what Ephraim was doing. They said, how dare you win without us? Not how amazing is our God that he won without us? He doesn't even need us. Of course he doesn't. He does it on his own. He chose to use you. How amazing is that? How often are we responding in pride to what the Lord is doing through other believers? Well, Jephthah judged in the region for six short years before passing away. And and when I look back at his life, I don't see an easy life here. Kicked out, leading, sacrificed the dearest thing in your life, lived six more years, pass away. And what we get is three minor judges serving, and we see that God is still, and this is the last thing, dealing with Israel. Look at 8 through 15. It says there, And after him, Ibzin of Bethlehem judged Israel. Notice what he has. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, whom he sent abroad and took in 30 daughters from abroad for sons. In other words, outside of Judah, Bethlehem, he would have been Judah, uh, Judah. And so he's sending out, he's building his network and rapport, and he judged Israel seven years. Then died Ibzan and was buried in Bethlehem. And after him, Elon, a Zebulonite, which would be closer up where Gideon and all those guys were, judged Israel. And he judged Israel 10 years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Ijalon in the country of Zebulon. And what you notice with him is that there is no lineage, there is no heritage, there's no kingship tied there. And a lot of people think that's because he's seen what that looks like with Gideon and Abimelech and all those different people. Then we get after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Peronathite, judged Israel. And I'm mispronouncing. I told the teens this. When I read this, I'm mispronouncing it. So don't take this as the way to do it. I just say it with confidence. And I say all these words and, and just go forward. And you just, you do it your way. I do it my way. This is how the Dutch do it. All right. So, and he had 40 sons and 30 nephews, which really is a word for grandsons that rode on three score and 10 donkeys colts. And he judged Israel eight years. And what you notice with the third one is again, that king vibe. And Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried in Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the Mount of the Amalekites. And as we've noted previously, the multiplication of judges was displaying need in Israel. Israel was constantly slipping and struggling. They're growing in their degradation. So we're going to see that. And then after the story of Samson, we're going to have two stories that go back in time just to kind of paint the picture of what life was like in Israel at this time, and it doesn't look pretty. Now, some of these judges, just to place it, would have been serving when Eli's sons were doing all the wickedness that they did. So I I want you to, in your mind and timing, these three minor judges are going to overlap with Eli and even Samuel in the sense of lifetimes. And so some of these guys would have been serving. Eli's sons were the ones engaging in wicked acts while pretending to serve the Lord. And we're, we're, we're at that, that point in history. Yet we notice something. There's a continual legacy style of rule coming through. And I want you to see something. They're also displaying tendencies. 
Two of them are showing generational leadership. That's not what a judge is supposed to do. When we see that from Samuel, by the way, Eli is a judge. In Scripture, is listed as a judge. He's a priest who's a judge. Samuel is your last real judge. After Samuel comes King Saul. But Samuel does the same thing. He ends up setting up his two sons to judge, though they're not God-called judges, and it ends in complete failure. His sons take bribes and pervert justice. It's even one of the reasons that the Israelites say to Samuel, give us a king, your sons aren't good judges. And so we see this tendency for heritage, this lineage to say, well, God called me, and so therefore he must have called my kids because I want them to have the same position. And you see them breaking that bond. Israel constantly needed intervention, and God called men to step up and serve. These are good men, but I want you to see something susceptible to the pull of kingship. Or I'm going to put it in our vernacular, susceptible to the pull of my way my stuff, my system, my life, pulled to set up their reign and not God's alone. But I wonder if we tend to neglect what they did right and chase what they did wrong. Because they are good men that God called to serve that obviously are making some errors in what they did. And we tend to ignore what they did right and say, I want to have the kings. I want to be king. I want to have this. I want to rule. I want to set up my kingdom. See, every other judge was called to be the human representative of what God was accomplishing. They were ruled by God, and he sent the judge to make that happen. And every time there was a king tendency, it's someone saying, ah, let's bypass that system and let's set up one of my own. Let me be king. I'll be king under him. That's fine, but I'm still king. See, Jephthah is a fascinating character in Scripture. He is an intelligent man with actions that are mirrored by the great King David, and he teaches us how we should function as the Lord's servant in a difficult circumstance. He showed godly prudence and wisdom, and he took godly and prompt action. And I think that's important. This is a man who doesn't delay. He knows what's right. He goes and does it. He was a leader who knew Scripture and applied it to life, a leader that made a promise to God, and he lived it, and a man that faced pride in others and exposed it. And as servants of the king... As ambassadors of our Savior and Lord, we are left here as ambassadors. We are called to be His light. We are here to serve Him. We have been left to emphasize Him, to, to, to say, this is who we serve. This is who we turn to. This is who we need. That's how we're left here. That's our job as New Testament believers. And I have two questions for us. Do we know His Word and apply it? If we're comparing to Jephthah, do we know God's Word to where we can send a messenger back and say, this is what God did. This is what God said. This is what took place. Do we know God's word and apply it? And then do we commit to him and then truly live it? I know a lot of us make a lot of commitments. Jephthah could have walked away with just words only as well. But Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and he lived it. And it was a deep sacrifice and it was tough. Do you know God's word and apply it? And then do you commit to him and truly live it? Let's pray. 